0: Martyrs and Missionaries is a production of Revive Studios. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode, I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're doing something a little bit different. I'm going to be teaming up with Troy from Revived Thoughts, and we're going to be bringing you the life of David Livingston, followed by a speech that he delivered that we have brought back with the talent of Jonathan Clausen, who is very well known on the Revived Thoughts side of things. Uh, So yeah, we're really excited about this, and I hope you enjoy it.
1: This is Troy and Elise, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts.
2: The time would come when the whole world would receive the knowledge of Christ. Because Christ had promised that all the earth should be covered with the knowledge of himself.
0: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. This speech was delivered in Cambridge in 1857.
1: Elise, this is fun. We don't normally do episodes where we cross over with other shows, but you know, Martyrs and Missionaries tells the great stories of martyrs and missionaries. And Revive Thoughts brings their speeches back to life. And once in a while, we get this moment where both of these things come together. David Livingston is one of the most famous missionaries of all time. And in this episode, we have a speech by him. Now, we've done a speech of his before. We did an episode in 2020. It was one of the biggest episodes of 2020. There's only two speeches of his really in existence. So this is the other one. And this one actually comes, if you were doing it chronologically, this one came before the other one we did. So this is actually day one. The other speech is day two. So we recommend you listen to both of them. We think they're really good. They're really great. And for this special speech where you get to just hit one of the great uh missionaries of history we i wanted to have elise on so she could just combine this with martyrs and missionaries because obviously she wants to have the missionary side of it we want the speech and so we thought it would be fun just to bring them both both of these two sides together and represent them well
0: yeah i'm super excited to be on. It's very rare that Revived Thoughts gets to do missionaries because they very rarely have a sermon or anything like that that you can really point to as a written or preached work. Um, so this is very exciting for us, and uh, we're, we're excited to be able to, to bring this to you guys in a way that is a holistic representation of David Livingston.
1: Elise this is also fun because if people don't know Elise is my wife she runs Martyrs and Missionaries and then I run help run Revive Studios with Joel so this is fun for us because we get to actually do an episode together though we've both been working on Revive Studios for a long time Elise has been a part of what we're doing since I mean for about a year now we've never actually been on the microphones together so this is kind of fun for me to have you across there
0: Oh, no, I completely agree. Usually I'm just monologuing for a long time for many, many episodes. It's just me by myself. So it's super exciting to actually see somebody across <laughs> and be able to be like, oh, hey, I'm talking to you, not just, not just going on for a long time. But anyway, let's actually dive into David Livingston here. Uh, David Livingston was born in 1813 in Scotland, and he had some of the humblest beginnings a man could have. These were the early days of the Industrial Revolution, so the poor would spend their entire existences working in factories, and many children died or were permanently maimed working for them. David's parents both worked in these mills, and David would start working in them at the age of 10, and this was one of the worst mills you could possibly work at. He worked 14-hour days. He would get to the mill at 6 a.m., and he was leaving at 8 p.m. It was, it was pretty terrible, and he used all the money that he earned there to pay for school, and he had heard stories from his father about missionaries who had done great things for Christ all his life, and yet when he actually came to Christ, it was reading a theologian's book who had combined a love for nature and pointed it back to Christ. And when he heard the story of a missionary in China who his medical expertise, he knew he wanted to do the same. And this took many years to accomplish. In Scotland, they trained their doctors to be surgeons and physicians. Often we think of surgeons as just being surgeons. They take things out, they don't really fix anything, but Scotland had a very different viewpoint. They were like, okay, you're gonna be able to take stuff out, but also you need to be able to cure ailments so they could check your eyes, their heart or remove a tumor and it was very different from the way that everybody else did doctoring. Many of us, if we grew up in Livingston's conditions, would be happy to survive. I mean, how many times must he have been exhausted from school and work and they had to be careful not to lose a finger in the machines like so many others? And instead of wanting to go to China and help others, how many of us would have just been happy to have a better life? Would any of us want a life like his? I don't think so. Yet, he did not see himself as having it hard, but instead he wanted to go to China and preach the gospel to the lost, and he trained for this goal until he was 25 years old
1: at 25 he was trained enough he was ready to go he went to the london missionary society hoping to go to china he had spent three months learning how to preach every good missionary should know how to preach right you're gonna have to visit villages and know how to do it well not livingston though he was not good at preaching at his first attempt he ran off the stage and nearly ended his missionary career he didn't even finish it he didn't even hardly get going a mentor helped him get a second chance, and three months later, he was considered fit for missionary service. And just take a minute to think, one of the greatest missionaries who ever lived was was scared to speak in public and ran off the stage early in his career. So if you feel like you've had some failures, you're going to see, you know, some of the greats have had some failures, too.
0: You can come back from it.
1: Exactly. Well, during the time that he spent those extra months training the opium wars broke out. And that was this war in Britain and where Britain and China were fighting. And that broke out in 1839 and prevented him from going to China. They couldn't send any more missionaries over during that time. He went to a missions conference. He heard a speech by Robert Moffat, his future father-in-law. And here's the line that stuck with him forever. Quote, the smoke of a thousand villages yet to be visited by the gospel. And within a few days, he was heading to Africa. His dad saw him off. He'd never see his dad Alive again. This man had wanted so bad for Livingston to make it to do something great, and he had read missionary stories to him when he was younger, just hoping to put a heart for missions and a heart for adventure into him. And he would die just before he returned. Livingston returned to England from his first time in Africa. His early days in the 1840s were not considered successful. In fact, some have said he never succeeded. I found this quote by a critic, and I want to read it to you because keep this in mind as you listen to the episode. I think you're going to find that criticism doesn't stand, but there is this aspect that we need to be aware of. And the quote goes like this. During the anti-colonial 1960s, Livingston was debunked. He made only one certified convert who later backslid. He explored few areas not already traveled by others. He freed few slaves. He treated his colleagues horribly. He, traded, he traveled with Arab slave traders. His family life was in shambles. In short too many he embodied the white man's burden mentality end quote now that's the quote the critic gives the same critic even mentioned that when there was decolonization happening no one was taking down the statues of david livingston and no one was renaming the cities of which there are a few in africa named after david livingston i think it's important uh, like so many of these guys we learn about in Revived Thoughts or Martyrs and Missionaries, to remember that they did fail. They suffered. You're going to listen to the story and just be blown away by how much Livingston suffered. But it's that tenacity. It's the holding on to God's promises through it all. It's the still believing God is good despite everything God is putting them through. That is, in my opinion, what really stands the test of time. And that's what's going to make Livingston's life and sacrifice so incredible.
0: After a while living in South Africa, he started traveling north. Originally, this was to set up missionary stations and learn the language better, but over time he had this vision, a vision of an Africa connected, one where roads carried trade back and forth. He really believed that Christianity and trade could defeat slavery, and he hated slavery. He described seeing families being broken up by the slave traders, gangs of people chained together in the heat of Africa, running into bodies of slaves just left out in the open after they had died, usually after being beaten and seeing their skeletons hanging in trees. Sometimes their paddles would bump into bodies in the night as they were on a river. And all of this made Livingston desire deeply to destroy the slave trade at all costs. The slave traders hated his opposition and attacked him, and he had his goods stolen so many times because of it. His accounts of the atrocities of the slavery in Africa moved the hearts of people in Britain. He helped them see the evils happening, and Britain would work to stop the slave trade in Africa, in large part because of Livingston bringing it to light. Livingston decided to cross the continent in order to find this visionary road for Africa, the one that would open it up to trade and the gospel. I think this is an easy thing to miss, but it's actually really a big deal, because... People might say like, oh, many people have traveled these roads before. Africans and Arabs have done it many, many times. But imagine growing up as a kid in school and you're looking at maps and you see a lot of North America, you can see Asia and all its countries. But when you look at Africa, although you know its shape, it was still a mystery. You didn't know what was there. You could ask the teacher and the teacher would say, only the people who live there know Europeans never survive it. No one had ever survived it who was from Europe. And so when he became the first person to do it, it was a really big deal because despite knowing that he was going to attempt what had been attempted for centuries and it never worked out, knowing that many people could kill him as he was going along, that disease would plague him and wild animals might kill him, and he had already been mauled by a lion and had his shoulder completely destroyed and his face had been wounded so badly from living in Africa, from the heat of the sun and just the, the constant exposure that his wife didn't recognize him when he came home after being away for five years, he still went. He basically went on a death march
1: crossing this part of africa he got sick 30 times and i won't go into all the details of the trip because livingston tells you all about it here in just a minute but afterwards, he was unsatisfied with this trip, so he decided, I'm gonna go back across the other direction of Africa. This meant that he was now making two nearly impossible trips across Africa that no one from Europe had ever done before. He also wanted to return the men who had helped him along the way, make sure they got back home safe. Uh, sometimes these men get forgotten, but if these men hadn't gone with him, these strong, very capable adventurers themselves that helped guide him across Africa, he would never have made it. So, you know, we, we we praise David Livingston, but it is important to remember the people that went with him as well. Mm-hmm. When the English heard that he was alive, it was a shock to Britain. You know, last they had heard from Livingston, the London Missionary Society, you know, got a note, a telegram or whatever saying, I'm heading across, the, you know, this long road of Africa and then months go by, you don't hear from him. You just assume he had died like many before him had. And then suddenly you get this telegram from another city across Africa. I made it. Now I'm going back the other way. And they're like, wait, what's going on? And then you, know, a year or two goes by, months, several months go by and suddenly you get another telegram. He made it to the other side as well. And while he was there, he had discovered rivers, lakes, Victoria Falls, all these things happen and people are excited. You know, the newspapers are writing about them. There's this man who is doing what no European had ever done before. And that map that had been so long, no one knew what was inside of it. Suddenly, for the first time, people could see some of the things that were inside of it. And they were amazed at the animals he was describing and the and the trees and the things he was seeing and the rivers and the waterfalls. All of it was blowing them away. And it was like a light was being shined into Africa for Europeans for the first time.
0: And I think any of us would think 2,000 miles was impressive and think, oh, it's a pretty long trip but remember for every mile there may be a tribe that doesn't want you to cross there may be slave traders there may be animals you'll need food and water you'll need to know where you're going so you need to stay oriented and there are constant mosquitoes and bites that bring with them diseases and that's one of the things that you really can't account for especially mosquitoes bugs things like that you're you're not always able to protect yourself from them like you might be an animal or you might be able to go around a different way to avoid slave traders but You were never completely safe from threat of disease. He returned to England for 16 years, and they said people were as shocked by him as if he'd been raised from the dead. And I mean, he had crossed a continent with very few letters able to get out of the inland. And multiple times you'd think you were never going to hear from him again just to find out he's headed your way. Uh, Huge crowds cheered for him, and everyone wanted him to speak, which is kind of funny because if you recall, he was unable to preach right before he came to Africa uh, so much that he almost failed and now he's being asked probably what, what 20 years later something like yeah, that. Yeah
1: 20 years or so. Yeah
0: he's being asked to speak before basically an entire continent about the things that he's found and it would be easy to forget about his wife as well. She had experienced these hardships waiting to hear from him and for years she'd gone without seeing him and people questioned their marriage and their love and whether she was a fully married to someone gallivanting across Africa like he did uh, like oh is he staying faithful what is he doing over there kind of stuff you would hear years from people that At one point, you considered to be friends. And yet, when he was receiving praise, he had her right next to him the entire time. And one lord gave a speech and said that she deserved all the respect that he did for her commitment to him. While in England, he was pressured to write his book, ever since David Brainerd, missionary biographies were very popular. And so when you would travel to another country, you spent spend any length of time there, when you got back, your mission society expected you were going to write them a book and they were going to sell copies and it was going to be able to fund the mission society, future endeavors, things like that. Uh, But he actually ended up not going with the London Mission Society, kind of caused a little bit of a souring there because he decided to go with uh, uh, a different publisher, a secular publisher, uh, because he wanted to make it more of a... Uh, not necessarily a just missions biography but also okay here's some of the uh, different things i found out scientifically and things like that and so that made it much more of a of an in-depth book and it would actually be one of the best-selling books in the genre of all times his book is called missionary travels and it actually uh, helped expose the slave trade and the, the need for abolition in africa so it was a really enlightening book to a lot of people who had no idea about anything in africa 10 seconds before.
1: However, there began to brew uh, troubles from this work, just as we mentioned, the London Missionary Society uh, with the book and all that. but They also started to question whether they should be spending so much time and money helping this guy explore Africa. Since he believed the exploration would save Africa, he thought it'd be a part of moving Africa forward. He actually withdrew from the London Missionary Society and went and joined the Royal Geographical Society instead. The London Missionary Society was being a little bit unfair because everywhere he went, he was constantly establishing missions stations, and he was constantly asking for more missionaries to join him in the work. But also in their defense, they probably expected him to be a preacher running a church and that kind of thing. What you would more expect, not a guy running all over the place. He also insisted that his wife come with him this time. He really wanted her to be there, and he had this big expedition. Many big British experts and explorers were coming along, and he loved her so dearly and wanted her to be a part of his work just so badly. But as soon as she arrived in Africa, a part of this big expedition, she became ill Uh, The two of them and their son had gone there, his son Oswell. um, She had attempted to recover. Him and his son kept going. And so she actually had some kids with her. They went back to England, put them back in school, and she waited in Africa till she felt better. By the time she started to feel better, she went back to him. But she never fully recovered, and within three months, she had died. And Livingston said it was the first time he felt in his heart that he himself wanted to die. Despite all the physical suffering... Everything he had gone through at this point, it was when he lost his wife, that hurt him so much more and just broke him. He unlike many of the men we will cover and have covered and Elise's covered, he never did remarry. Around the same time, he got some other bad news. The river that he had been so sure would be this great road that could help connect Africa, he found out it was not passable. There were rapids just beyond where he had explored last time. It was just a little bit out of the way. If they had gone a few miles kind of in the other direction, they would have seen them, but it made it impossible now for boats to travel. He had come up with all these other ideas to connect Africa, but this, this, this river really was the bridge he had wanted it to be, and he had kind of sold it back to all these different people as this was the way, and so when they found out that there were these rapids and they wouldn't be able to do it and they sent this money to him and he wasn't gonna be able to do what he had said this really disappointed them and they were not happy with him and so yet another area in his life where something is going wrong
0: And at almost the same time, two missions have been started inspired by the work that Livingston was doing. The London Missionary Society has sent people to a place that Livingston suggested, but it was an absolute disaster and almost all of them died. And another group, the university Mission to Central Africa, had also gone because of Livingston, not directly, but they looked to him for advice and wisdom and they got too involved with local politics and many of the members died of illness. And when their leader died, they were withdrawn. So within two years time, Livingston lost his wife, his mission plans, his funding, and he didn't know it yet, but also his son, his oldest son, Robert Livingston, went to look for him, but he didn't find him and became a sailor going to America. He changed his name to Rupert Vinson, maybe unhappy with his father or fearful of being used as a hostage of some kind. And when his boat sailed into harbor in Boston, it's the middle of the Civil War, and he was forced to take the place of a rich person's child, and he was supposed to fight. This was actually fairly common at the time. A lot of times, if you were well-to-do, you would just hire somebody else. It was kind of basically a draft, but instead of being drafted by your government, you were kind of being forcefully drafted by rich people. Uh, so he had no choice. And he fought for the Union until he was captured and later injured in battle. And he died in 1864. And he is buried in Gettysburg. When David Livingston went back to Britain, things were not nearly as good for him. And sometimes this gets a little bit colored uh, in the way that uh, they got to make him more unpopular than he was. Um, but it, it was kind of like a mixed reception basically some people were really excited and some people were kind of like what have you done and so the next book he wrote actually was a defense of his actions going back to africa like "Oh, okay i didn't tell i told you not to get involved in politics over here and different things like that so he was basically having to defend himself in his next novel and the royal geographic society was still happy with him they offered to pay him handsomely if he would just search for the nile's beginning and leave off the mission stuff and he refused and so he was given no official funds from them
1: When he arrived in Africa this next time, he wanted to find where the Nile began, and he wanted to continue to bring trade and Christianity everywhere he went. No one heard from him for years. Several years, in fact, would go by, and no one knew where he was. In fact, some of the people that had traveled with him and gave up said, oh, he died, he's dead. And so it really seemed like Livingston was gone. But an American reporter was told, go and find him. It'd be the biggest biggest news scoop in the world. If you can go find Livingston, the guy who sent him was like, I just think he's still alive out there. So this reporter, a Civil War soldier who had been captured and survived, much like uh, Livingston's son, except he had not survived, was sent to find him. Meanwhile, Livingston is in Africa, and his medicine, the one he needed to ease his pain, had recently been stolen from him. He would just go around in just extreme suffering with nothing to stop it. Foot sores, um, some of his teeth were falling out. He had all kinds of uh, dysentery, all kinds of terrible things were happening all the time. And one day he just said he described just breaking down and asking God if it was just time. Maybe, God, it's time to end my suffering. Take me home, Lord. I'm, I'm done. I don't, I don't know that I have anything left in me. And if you're done with me, can you let me come home, is what he pretty much prayed. And when he finished praying, he was shocked to see just maybe a few minutes later, the story describes it almost as he looked up. He was there. I don't know if it was quite that miraculous, but the Lord could definitely do it. He looks up and he sees a European coming into his hut. And it's probably the first time he'd seen one in years. And he, he kind of looks at him and famously says, uh, the European looks at him famously and says, uh, Dr. Livingston, I presume? Now, he he came with that, with that line in, in his mind, but it became one of the most famous lines of all time. Now, he also came bearing the very medicine Livingston needed, the very medicine Livingston had been asking God to give him, and he also came with letters, memories from home, news from Europe, things that really deeply comforted him. This man, that same reporter who had been sent to find Livingston earlier, Henry Morton Stanley, deeply encouraged him in that moment, and he got the courage and the strength to keep going and to not give up yet. Henry Morton Stanley, by the way, wow. What a life! Uh, never seen anything like it. Uh, I'll be honest. I at least asked me how she was going to ever top Gladys Aylward on Mars and Missionaries. If you haven't listened to her three part on that, my goodness, it's really good. You need to go listen to it and download that right now while you're listening to this one. And I told her, don't worry, you will. There's always another incredible story to tell. And when we tell you that story, might be Stanley's story. I've never, I've never read anything like it. If you, it just you,
0: keeps going, you think it's, you think it's done. You're like, okay, <laughs> this is, this is the most a man can do. And then you're, you literally, you, you finish reading a section. And I won't ruin any of it for you. But you finish reading a section. You're like, how bad can it get? Like, oh, the worst is behind them. And, no, oh, the worst had yet to come. And you're like, what is going to happen? It, is, it is, it's, is. It's insane.
1: It's an absolutely insane that one human lived that life. And be looking for that in Mars Missionaries. Again, it might be the one that comes to kind of go up against Gladys Aylward for great, just amazing stories. So Henry comes to Livingston. And he's a devout atheist at this point, by the way. But watching, walking. Living with Livingston for a few months in Africa, it changed him. He saw this broken man who'd lost teeth. He lost an eye. He lost the use of his left arm. He lost his wife. He lost his son. He'd given up so much for God. He was miserable. He was slowly dying of dysentery and any other disease but instead of seeing a broken man, he saw a man just filled with grace and virtue. Stanley would re- later report his surprise and how he was just captivated, his words, by the courtesy, dignity, patience, and high morals of Livingston. Writing of him, he would say directly, Stanley would say, uh, quote, lowly of spirit, meek in speech, merciful of heart, pure in mind, peaceful in act. During health or sickness, he was consistently noble, upright, pious, and manly in all the days of my companionship with him. Livingston's patience and perseverance it just impressed Stanley so much, and he did become a believer.
0: Stanley wanted Livingston to return to Britain to recover, but Livingston was determined to explore and learn more, even as sick and as fragile as he was. I mean, basically, there wasn't an ailment this man did not have. He shared his stories that helped highlight, again, the evils of slavery. And within about a year, in 1873, he had died. And the legend is that he died while praying on his knees. And actually, we, we heard somebody talk about this. He had was praying so diligently and so faithfully and so piously. The people who were there, they were kind of like around him to make sure that he could get into bed okay because he was praying um, at the foot of his bed. They felt kind of uncomfortable. They're like, okay, this man is communing one-on-one with the Lord, and we really shouldn't be here. And so they left the room, and the legend, rumor has it, that this is how he died, just communing with the Lord. And his only regret in life was that he was not able to be a better father to his kids. And he was as good of a father as you can be being away from your children And separated by an entire continent, but his children clearly loved him. One of his sons tried to go and find him. Another son actually traveled with them for a time. They had as good of a family as you could possibly have. But that was his only regret: was that he was not able to be a better father to his kids. And his body was traveled thousands of miles as they carried it out of Africa. They stopped and made sure they embalmed him, and they wanted to make sure that he was interned in a way that was respectful and deserving of the life and station that he held. And this is actually important because it tells you how much they respected the work that he did while he was there because he was he was carried out much like you would carry out basically a king. Uh, and he was eventually buried in Westminster Abbey. And actually uh, Stanley was one of the pallbearers at that funeral and he held the, I guess there is, I didn't know this, but there is a um, respect, um, the most respected pallbearer, there's a position for them. Maybe that's common knowledge. I didn't know that. Anyway, Stanley was that man. He was the most respected polar bear.
1: In this speech, this happened in the middle of his life. He tells people of his adventure and life in Africa. And this is kind of early. I mean, he hasn't gotten some of the worst parts of his life yet, but you can see that he held on through it no matter what. He wants to change the people's hearts and minds on Africa. He wants to encourage them to end the slave trade. And more than anything, he wants to inspire them to go and to be missionaries to that continent.
2: When I went to Africa about 17 years ago, I resolved to acquire an accurate knowledge of the native languages, and as I continued while there to speak generally in the African languages, the result is that I am not now very fluent in my own. But if you will excuse my imperfections, I will endeavor to give you as clear an idea of Africa as I can. If you look at the map of Africa, you will discover the shortness of the coastline. This is one reason why the interior of Africa has remained so long unknown to the rest of the world. In the southern part of Africa lies the Great Kalahari Desert. Not called this because it is merely a sandy plain, devoid of vegetation, such a desert I never saw until I got between Suez and Cairo. Kalahari is called a desert because it contains no streams and water is obtained only from deep wells. The reason why so little rain falls on this extensive plain is because the winds prevailing over the greater part of the interior country are easterly. The moisture taken up by the atmosphere from the Indian Ocean is deposited on the eastern hilly slopes. Few showers can be given to the middle and western lands in consequence of the humidity and the increasing heat in the air. The people living there, not knowing the physical reasons why they have so little rain, are in the habit of sending to the mountains on the east for rainmakers, in whose power of making rain they have a firm belief. They say the people in those mountains have plenty of rain, and therefore must possess a medicine for making it. This faith in rainmaking is a remarkable feature in the people of the country, and they have a good deal to say in favor of it. If you say you do not believe that these medicines have any power upon the clouds, they reply that, That is just the way people talk about what they do not understand. They take a bulb, pound it, and administer an infusion of it to a sheep. In a short time, the sheep dies in convulsions, and then they ask, Look at the power of our medicine! I do not think our friends of the homeopathic persuasion have much more to say than that. You cannot convince them that they have no power to make rain. As it is with the homeopathist, so it is with the rainmaker. You might argue your tongue out of joint and would convince neither. I went into that country for the purpose of teaching the doctrines of our holy religion and settled with the tribes on the border of the Kalahari Desert. These tribes were those of the Bakwains, Bushmen, and Bakalahari. Shishele is the chief of the former. On the occasion of the first religious service I held, he asked me if he could put some questions on the subject of Christianity to me. This was the custom of their country when any new subject was introduced. I said, by all means. He then inquired, if my forefathers knew of a future judgment that would come. I said, yes, and began to describe the scene of the great white throne, and him who would sit on it, from whose face the heavens will flee away and be no more seen. Interrupting, he said, you startle me. These words make all my bones shake. I have no more strength in me. You have been talking about a future judgment and many terrible things of which we know nothing about. Did your forefathers know of these things? I again replied in the affirmative. The chief said, All my forefathers have passed away into darkness without knowing anything like this will come. How is it that your forefathers, knowing all these things, did not send word to my forefathers sooner? This was a puzzler. But I explained the geographical difficulties and said it was only after we had begun to send the knowledge of Christ to Cape Colony and other parts of the country to which we had access that we came to them, that it was their job to receive what Europeans had before obtained and that the time would come when the whole world would receive the knowledge of Christ. Because Christ had promised that all the earth should be covered with the knowledge of himself. The chief pointed to the Kalahari Desert and said, Will you ever get beyond that with your gospel? We who are more accustomed to thirst than you are cannot cross that desert. How can you? I stated my belief in the promise of Christ. And in a few years afterwards, that chief was the man who enabled me to cross that desert. And not only so, but he himself preached the gospel to tribes beyond it. In some years, more rain than usual falls in the desert, and then there is a large crop of watermelons. When this occurred, the desert might be crossed. In 1852, a gentleman crossed it, and his oxen existed on the fluid contained in the melons for 22 days. In crossing the desert, different sorts of countries are met with. Up to 20th south latitude, there is a comparatively dry and arid country and you might travel for four days, as I have done, without a single drop of water for the oxen. Water for the travelers themselves was always carried in the wagons. The usual mode of traveling south of the twentieth degree of latitude being by ox wagon. For four days, upon several occasions, we had not a drop of water for the oxen. But beyond twentieth south latitude, going to the north, we traveled to Luanda. Fifteen hundred miles without carrying water for a single day. The country in the southern part of Africa is a kind of oblong basin, stretching north and south, bounded on all sides by old mineral rocks. The waters of the central basin find an exit through a fissure into the river Zambezi, flowing to the east. My object in going into the country south of the desert was to instruct the natives in a knowledge of Christianity, but many circumstances prevented my living amongst them for more than seven years. One of my concerns arose out of the slave system carried on by the Dutch Boers. I resolved to go into the country beyond, and soon found that, for the purposes of commerce, it was necessary to have a path to the sea. The chief was overjoyed at the suggestion of bringing commerce from the sea, and furnished me with twenty-seven men, and canoes, and provisions, and presents for the tribes through whose country we had to pass." We might have taken a shorter path to the sea than that to the north, and then to the west, by which we went. But along the country by the shorter route, there is an insect called the Sese, whose bite is fatal to horses, oxen, and dogs, but not to men or donkeys. You seem to think there is a connection between the two. The habitat of that insect is along the shorter route to the sea. The bite of it is fatal to domestic animals not immediately, But certainly in the course of two or three months, the animal grows leaner and leaner, and gradually dies of starvation. On account of this insect, I resolved to go to the north, and then westwards to the Portuguese settlement of Luanda. Along the course of the river which we passed, animals were so abundant that there was no difficulty in supplying the wants of my whole party. Antelopes were so tame that they might be shot from the canoe. But beyond 14 degrees of south latitude, the Africans had guns, and had themselves destroyed the game, so that I and my party had to live on charity. The people, however, in that central region were friendly and hospitable, but they had nothing but vegetables to give. The most abundant was the cassava, which, however nice when made into tapioca pudding, resembles in its more primitive condition nothing so much as a mess of laundry starch. There was a desire in the various villages through which we passed to dialogue with us, and kindness and hospitality were shown to us. But when we got near the Portuguese settlement of Angola, the case was changed, and payment was demanded for everything we needed. But I had nothing to pay with. Now the people had been in the habit of trading with the slavers, and so they said I might give one of my men in payment for what I wanted. When I told them that I could not do this, They looked upon me as an interloper, and I was sometimes in danger of being murdered. As we neared the coast, the name of England was recognized, and we got on with ease. Upon one occasion, when I was passing through the parts visited by slave traders, a chief who wished to show me some kindness offered me a slave girl. Upon explaining that I had a little girl of my own, whom I should not like my own chief to give away, The chief thought I was displeased with the size of the girl, and sent me one that was taller. By this and other means, I convinced my men of my opposition to the principle of slavery. And when we arrived at Luanda, I took them on board a British vessel, where I took pride in showing them that those countrymen of mine and those guns were there for the purpose of putting down the slave trade. They were convinced from what they saw of the honesty of Englishmen's intentions. And the hearty reception they met from the sailors made them say to me, "'We see they are your countrymen, for they have hearts like you.'" On the journey, the men had always looked forward to reaching the coast. They had seen Manchester prints and other articles imported, and they could not believe that they were made by mortal hands. On reaching the sea, they thought that they had come to the end of the world. They said, "'We marched along with our father.'" thinking the world was a large plain without limit, but all at once the land said, I am finished, there is no more of me. And they called themselves the true old men, the true ancients, having gone to the end of the world. On reaching Lolanda, they commenced trading in firewood, and also engaged themselves in sixpence a day in unloading coals, brought by a steamer for the supply of the cruiser lying there to watch the slave vessels. On their return, they told their people, We worked for a whole moon, carrying away the stones that burn. By the time they were ready to go back to their own country, each had secured a large bundle of goods. On the way back, however, fever detained them, and their goods were all gone, leaving them on their return home as poor as when they started. I had gone towards the coast for the purpose of finding a direct path to the sea But on going through the country, we found forests so dense that the sun had not much influence on the ground, which was covered with yellow mosses, and all the trees with white lichens. Amongst these forests were little streams, each having its source in a bog. In fact, nearly all the rivers in that country commence in bogs. Finding it impossible to travel here with wheels, I left my wagon behind, and I believe it is standing in perfect safety where I last saw it to this very day. The only other means of travel we had was oxback, by no means a comfortable mode of traveling. I therefore came back to discover another route to the coast by means of the river Zambezi. The same system of inundation that distinguishes the Nile is also afflicted by this river, and the valley of the Baratze is exceedingly like the valley of the Nile between Cairo and Alexandria. The water does not flow off, but gradually soaks into the soil, and then oozes out in bogs, in which all the rivers take their rise. They have two rainy seasons in the year, and consequently two periods of inundation. The reason why the water remains so clear is this. The country is covered by such a mass of vegetation that the water flows over the grass without disturbing the soil beneath. There is a large central district containing a large lake formed by the course of the Zambezi to explore which would be well worthy of the attention of any individual wishing to distinguish himself. Having gone down amongst the people in the middle of the country, and having made known to my friend the chief my desire to have a path for civilization and commerce on the east, he again furnished me with means to pursue my research eastward. And to show how disposed the Africans were to aid me in my expedition, I had a hundred and fourteen men to accompany me to the east." whilst those who had traveled to the west with me only amounted to twenty-seven. And when I left my wagon to set forth on my journey, two warriors of the country offered a cow each to the man who would slay anyone who molested it. Having proceeded about a hundred miles, I found myself short of ammunition, and dispatched an emissary back to the chief to procure more percussion caps from a box I had in my wagon. Not understanding the lock, the chief took a hatchet and split the lid open to get what was wanted. And notwithstanding the insecure state in which it remained, I found, on returning two years afterwards, that its contents were precisely as I left them. Such honesty is rare in civilized Christian England as I know from experience, for I sent a box of fossils to Dr. Buckland, which after arriving safely in England was stolen from some railway, being probably mistaken for plate. I could not make my friend the chief understand that I was poor. And while it lasted, the chief would favor me with his company for coffee. When it was gone, I told the chief how it was produced from the cane, which grew in Central Africa. But as they had no means of extracting the saccharine matter, he requested me to build a sugar mill. When I told him I was poor, the chief then informed me that all the ivory in the country was at my disposal, and he accordingly loaded me with tusks. Ten of which, on arriving at the coast, I spent in purchasing clothing for my followers. Englishmen are very apt to form their opinion of Africans from the elegant figures seen in pictures on tobacco shops. Englishmen are very apt to form their opinion of Africans from the elegant figures seen in pictures in tobacco shops. I scarcely think such stereotypes are fair to the African. Their customs are very different from our own. The people of one tribe knock out all their upper front teeth, and when they laugh, are perfectly terrifying. Another tribe of the Londa country file all their front teeth to a point, like cat's teeth. Another tribe has a custom of piercing the cartilage of the nose and inserting a bit of reed. This spreads it out and is very disagreeable-looking. Another tie their hair into basketwork resembling the decorations of the ancient Egyptians and yet others again dress the hair with a hoop around it so as to resemble the Gloria round the head of the Virgin. They are far more than the stereotypes we have of them. The people of Central Africa have religious ideas stronger than those of the Kafirs and other southern nations who talk much of God but pray seldom. In Central Africa, they pray to departed relatives by whom they imagine illnesses are sent to punish them for any neglect on their part. Evidence of the Portuguese Jesuit missionary operations are still present, and are carefully preserved by the natives. One tribe can all read and write, which is because of the teaching of the Jesuits. Their only books are, however, histories of the saints and miracles affected by the parings of saintly toenails and similar nonsense. But surely, if such an impression has once been produced, it might be hoped that the efforts of Protestant missionaries. Who would leave the Bible with these people would not be less fruitful. From a commercial point of view, communication with this country is desirable. Angola is wonderfully fertile, producing every kind of tropical plant in rank luxuriance. Passing on to the valley of Quango, the stalk of the grass was as thick as a quill, and towered above my head, although I was mounted on my ox. Cotton is produced in great abundance. Though merely woven into common cloth, bananas and pineapples grow in great luxuriance here. But since the people have no markets to trade with, these advantages are almost lost. The country on the other side is not quite so fertile. But in addition to indigo, cotton and sugarcane produces a fibrous substance which I am assured is stronger than flax. The Zambezi has not been thought as a river by Europeans. Not appearing very large at its mouth, but on going up it for about 70 miles, it is enormous. The first 300 miles might be navigated without obstacles. But then there are rapids, and near it an enormous coal field. The elevated sides of the basin, which form the most important feature of the country, are far different in climate to the country nearer the sea, or even the center. Here the grass is short. And the Angola goat, which could not live in the center, has been seen on the East Highland by Mr. Moffat. My desire is to open a path to this district that civilization, commerce, and Christianity might find their way there. I consider that we made a great mistake when we carried commerce into India, in being ashamed of our Christianity. As a matter of common sense and good policy, it is always best to appear in one's true character. In traveling through Africa, I might have imitated certain Portuguese Jesuits from the past and have passed for a chief, but I never attempted anything of the sort, although endeavoring always to keep to the lessons of cleanliness rigidly instilled by my mother long ago. The consequence was that the natives respected me for that quality, though they did not follow it themselves." I had a pass from the Portuguese consul, and on arriving at their settlement, I was asked what I was. I said, a missionary, and a doctor, too. They asked, are you a doctor of medicine? Yes. Are you not a doctor of mathematics, too? "Uh, No. And yet you can take longitudes and latitudes. Then they asked me about my mustache. And I simply said I wore it, because men had mustaches to wear and ladies had not. They could not understand either, why a priest should have a wife and four children, and many jokes took place upon that subject. I used to say, is it not better to have children with than without a wife? Men of education and proper manners always command respect, without any extra need to qualify themselves. A prospect is now before us of opening Africa for commerce and the gospel. Providence has been preparing the way. For even before I proceeded to the Central Basin, it had been conquered and rendered safe by a chief named Sebetwane, and the language of the Betuanas had been made the fashionable tongue, and that was one of the languages into which Mr. Moffat had translated the scriptures. And going back to that country, my object is to open up traffic along the banks of the Zambezi, and also to preach the gospel. The natives of Central Africa are very desirous of trading. But their only traffic is, at present, in slaves, of which the poorer people have no other opportunities. It is therefore most desirable to encourage their desire for trade, and thus open a way for the consumption of free productions, and then bring in the introduction of Christianity too. By encouraging their desire for trade, the advantages that might be delivered in a commercial point of view are incalculable. But we should never lose sight of the inestimable blessings it is in our power to bestow upon Africa. By sharing the light of Christianity, Englishmen who neglect to share Christ should be warned by the fruits of neglecting that principle as seen in the results of other places we've done trade. By trading with Africa, we should be independent of slave labor and help to discontinue these practices so awful to every Englishman. Though the natives are not absolutely anxious to receive the gospel, they are open to Christian ideas. Among the Bechuanas, the gospel was well received. Those people think it a crime to shed a tear, but I have seen some of them weep at the recollection of their sins when God had opened their hearts to Christianity and repentance. It is true that missionaries have difficulties to encounter, but what great enterprise was ever accomplished without difficulty? It is deplorable to think that one of the noblest of our missionary societies, the Church Missionary Society, is compelled to send to Germany for missionaries, while other societies are amply supplied. Let this stain be wiped off. The sort of men who are wanted for missionaries are such as I see before me today men of education, standing, enterprise, zeal, and piety. It is a mistake to suppose that anyone as long as he is pious will do for this office. Pioneers in everything should be the ablest and best qualified men, not those of small ability and education. This remark especially applies to the first teachers of Christian truth in regions which may never have before been blessed with the name and gospel of Jesus Christ. In the early ages, the monasteries were the schools of Europe and the monks were not ashamed to do this work. The missionaries now take the place of those noble men, and we should not hesitate to give up the small luxuries of life in order to carry knowledge and truth to them that are in darkness. I hope that many of those whom I now address will embrace that honorable career. Education has been given to us from above for the purpose of bringing the knowledge of a Savior. If you knew the satisfaction of performing such a duty as well as the gratitude to God which the missionary must always feel, in being chosen for such a noble task, so sacred a calling, you would have no hesitation in embracing it. For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God? which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the world in such a view, and with such a thought, it is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety... Sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then, with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which will hereafter be revealed in. And for us, I never made a sacrifice. Of this we should not talk. When we remember the great sacrifice which he made, who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us, who being the righteousness of that father's glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. English people are treated with respect, and the missionary can earn his living by his gun on the hunt, a course not open to a county priest. I would rather be a poor missionary than a poor priest. Then there is the pleasant prospect of returning home and seeing the agreeable faces of his friends again. I suppose I present a stark contrast to you At Cairo, we met a party of young English people whose faces were quite a contrast to the skinny, withered ones of those who had spent the latter years of their life in a tropical climate like we had. There is also the pleasure of the welcome home, and I heartily thank you for the welcome you have given me on the present occasion. But there is also the hope of the real welcome. The words of our Lord, well done, good and faithful servant. I beg you to direct your attention to Africa. I know that in a few years I will die in that land which is now open to us. Do not let it be shut again. I go back to Africa to try to make an open path for Christianity. Will you carry out the work which I have begun? I will leave it all to you.
1: You'll hear in this speech and the other speech we have of this, again, if you haven't heard that one, make sure you go listen to it, that he was always looking for more people to carry out the work. We know after he died that Mary Slessor, someone Elise had on her show she had covered, uh, would go to Africa, motivated to, by his death to go continue the work that he was doing, and she would do great things for him. Henry Stanley also, who will Elise will cover later, he also, when he realized Livingston wasn't there, he would go and continue that work too. Some doubt his success. I did read that quote at the top of the show saying, you know, well, he wasn't actually very successful after all. But the evils of slavery were highlighted. Maps were filled in. Science and animals were brought to the world that didn't. And many people were told about Jesus Christ. And many, many were inspired to become missionaries by his work. I think, though, the question is, 160 years later, who will carry out that work? There are still people going is the work being done? Or is Christ still being brought to these places where His name has never been heard before? special thanks to Jonathan Clawson for reading this speech. Jonathan Clawson started with Clear Channel Radio in the 90s. Jonathan has worked in audio and marketing for 20 years. Credits include Stinset, EA Tyburn, Christianity Today, Christ in Pop Culture, and Freelancing as a voice talent for audiobooks and podcast production services. Jonathan is a old regular around Revive Studios and if you have not listened to his uh, other sermons, again he did David Livingston Part 1. He's done uh, Five Minutes After I Die. Just some really great sermons. We really have appreciated his work and so definitely go check them out they're all wonderful episodes this wraps up this episode of Revive Thoughts. Thank you, Elise, for coming on from over from Martyrs and Missionaries, Revive Studios' a sister show to help us tell the great story of this amazing missionary.
0: Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. I am very excited we were able to give, come together and bring uh, back the speech of somebody whose life is just so important, pivotal, monumental in missionary and just Christian history.
1: Absolutely. If you are not subscribed to Martyrs and Missionaries, we absolutely want you to go subscribe to that. If you're coming in from the Martyrs and Missionaries feed and you don't really know much about Revive Thoughts. We also encourage you to subscribe to Revive Thoughts, where we bring speeches of the past back to life. And we hope you guys will enjoy these different shows. We think this show is a great one to share with other people. It is a rarity of history, something truly brought back that has been forgotten, and a story and a man who will definitely inspire many to come. And so we hope that you will share this with other people, tell a friend, put it up on social media, or shoot it in a text to someone and let them hear this. Maybe they will be deeply encouraged, and maybe they will be convicted in how they live their lives as well. This is Troy and Elise, and this is Revive Thoughts.